Well, thank you, Ben, for your prayers. I um, just want to thank um, the men that um, came before me in the service. I just want to thank you, Bob, for your example <clears throat> of uh, loving the Lord and loving God's church. I, mean, I, I think we definitely got a glimpse of a, of a man of God's heart. He is um, fighting for each breath, and his prayer to God is to see his children again. And his prayer is to be able to serve God one more time, serve God in a greater way. And that's definitely the heart and the passion of a man who is set apart for his glory. Uh, definitely, Bob, it's, I sense that God gave you a new heart. But more importantly, God has enlarged your heart for a greater desire for him and a greater desire to know and serve him. We thank the Lord for answering our prayers and bringing you back to us. And I look forward to uh, uh, playing some ball on the courts with you again soon. And thank you for John and the Ireland team. Um, we thank God for you, just for your ministry this uh, past summer and, and honoring the Lord and the gospel ministry in the country of Ireland. There's just a sense, a great sense that God was glorified in your conduct and in your ministry. And to have you guys return with such good report, it is such an encouragement to us. Um, we are amazed at God's faithfulness to you and to us through you. And um, John, I, I share your heart completely that we are just in the easy place. I think God placed the mature Christians in a difficult place. God placed the uh, strong Christians mature believers in difficult places throughout the world and God placed the weak believers here in the States um, because we were not able to, we wouldn't be able to stand in such a difficult place and I agree with you John and may you just and the whole team and our Czech team and Ireland team as well really spur us on to having a heart for the lost a deep compassion for the harvest that men and women might hear the gospel they might repent and turn and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We, uh, you know, Bob and I, we, our passion is the ministry. Uh, our burden is for the Lord's work. I mean, it literally keeps us up at night. But just to hear that your testimony, your report, there's a sense where you guys joined the team in a sense. You've partnered with us in the gospel ministry. And we truly thank God for you, and we thank God for God's work um, during the past few weeks. Well, let's go to our text this morning, John chapter 6. Again, our time is limited. We'll see how far we will go in our study. But John's sharing about the ministry in Ireland is a perfect place to start for our study in John chapter 6. And there's a genuine sense, is there not? But they've experienced firsthand God's work while they were there. Um, there's a genuine sense that they experienced the thrill of being used by God. Just the thrill, the privilege of being used by God to proclaim the gospel and have men and women hear that gospel through them. Maybe you've had such an experience in your life. Maybe you've had the privilege of such experiences of seeing God work through your life. 
Maybe you've led worship before. Maybe you've led small group, or you've taught children in Sunday school, or VBS, or you've, you've been involved in personal evangelism, or you've gone to summer missions, and you've experienced that sheer joy and excitement of seeing God work through your feeble hands. If you have, you know that it's an exhilarating experience. It's amazing. And I sense that excitement and joy in talking with both mission teams. Their joy and their enthusiasm is clearly evident because they saw God work in and through their lives. You know, I can see it in their faces. Yesterday at the wedding, some of those Ireland members, they acted like it was their wedding. <laughs> I mean, they were so happy, they were so excited, they were so enthusiastic. I mean, did you guys see Jenny Lee and Judy Yu on the dance floor? <laughs> I mean, why were they so happy? It wasn't their wedding. <laughs> well, I believe they were glowing because they saw firsthand, they experienced firsthand the mighty work of God's grace. They were preaching the gospel for two weeks. They were involved in the Lord's work. They saw it firsthand with their own eyes. And that was the reason for their joy. Well, imagine then if you were one of the disciples, as they experienced firsthand the greatest miracle of Christ during his three years of ministry, God used these 12 men to feed over 20,000 people miraculously. Imagine if you were one of the 12. Think about it. There are 20,000, a stadium full of hungry men, women, and children, and they're all dying of hunger. And God uses you. You have the privilege to go to them with five loaves of bread and two fish and you feed each and every one and they come away satisfied. They're filled to the brim. And you see that first time. It must have been such a great experience. But not only that, later that evening, they saw something unbelievable as they were buffered against the winds at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 6, 19-21. They see Christ walking on water, coming towards them. Enter the boat, and He calms the storm, and in an instant, they're on the shore. I believe if it weren't for, if they hadn't seen it for themselves, they would have had a difficult time believing anyone else's report. Though these two miracles highlight the zenith of our Lord's public ministry, for John the Apostle, these are secondary. I mean, he was there. He was used by Christ. He saw Christ walking on water. But what he focuses on is not these two miracles. Although they were amazing and fantastic and incredible, for John, these are ancillary. These are secondary to the great dialogue of Christ. What he zeroes in on, what he focuses on, is the words of Christ. Why? Because that's what Peter says. You have the words of eternal life and John understands that. That eternal life is not in the experiences of these miracles. But eternal life, salvation, is in the words of Christ. So again, I don't want to belabor this point. But it is again crucial for us to understand that the main thrust of this chapter is again our Lord's words. Starting with, chapter, starting with verse 25. Verse 25. Well, to bring us up to, up to 
uh, you know, just up to par in terms of where we're at historically. It is the day after the Lord fed the crowds. Next morning, people wake up. They find out that the Lord is gone. He's nowhere to be found. They get in their own boats. They cross the Sea of Galilee, heading towards Capernaum, our Lord's home base. Once there, they find our Lord. In verse 25, they ask the first of four questions. The first question is, Rabbi, Lord, Curios, when did you get here? Our Lord answers them in verses 26 to 29. And in these verses, we find five truths from the words of Christ. Five truths from the words of Christ. Number one, we looked at it last week, is that our Lord is the heart searcher. That He knows the thoughts and intentions of man's heart. Hearts. John 6.15, He knew that they wanted to make Him king by force. Again in verse 26, He knows why they're there. He knows why they circumnavigate the Sea of Galilee to search and find Him. Their motivation, their dro what drove them, was because they were hungry again. They wanted more bread. They wanted more fish. They wanted to use Christ as a means to their own end. The crowds converged on Christ. They searched and found Him. And He said, he said to them, verse 26, You are looking for Me not because you saw miraculous signs that point to My true identity. You came and you looked for Me because you ate your loaves and you had your fill. He didn't buy into their external praise. He confronted their false motives of the people. And he says, I tell you the truth, you just want more food. You don't want to follow me because you believe in me. You want to follow me because you are worshipers of yourself. That reveals to us that our, our king, our Lord, is a great heart searcher. He knew the hearts of these men like plain sight. And he knows our hearts. And we emphasized last week the importance of having right motivations in following the Lord. That a key place to start, anyone here to this morning is considering, should I follow Christ? The place to start is, why should I, why should I follow Christ? Or why am I following Christ? Because that's the first thing Christ confronted with the masses. Then our Lord tells them in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him God the Father has placed to seal on approval. Here we see the second truth. Our Lord uh, forbids them. He commands them to stop working for food that spoils. To stop working no longer. Present imperative. This is what you're doing. Stop doing that. It's a command. It's a figure of speech that our Lord employs in this unique circumstance of them seeking Him out for food. I mean, it's the divine wisdom of Christ. He did this throughout His ministry. Right? Remember when He saw a rich young man come towards Him and He knew He was rich? He said, go and sell all you have and then follow Me. Samaritan woman, he was by the well, and he said, I give you water that will spring up into eternal life. Remember when Nicodemus came to Christ in John 3, proud of his Jewish birth? Lord says, you must be born again. Well, as our Lord sees the masses coming to him for food, he seizes that circumstance with divine wisdom. He turns it around. And he confronts them to teach them spiritual truth. He commands them, do not work for the food which perishes. NAS spoils in the NIV. 
It is a remarkable command that needs explanation. He was not encouraging idleness. He was not saying, stop working, cast off your occupation, you don't need to work any longer. No, our Lord was not encouraging laziness. Labor was ordained to Adam before the fall. It's not the result of the fall. Adam was working before sin into the earth. It is our privilege, our duty to work. Labor is honorable in all men. If we don't work, we shall not eat. What our Lord was saying is, do not be engrossed. Do not be infatuated, upset, obsessed, compulsively obsessed in seeking things that are temporal, in seeking things that will perish. Do not labor, do not strive, do not be preoccupied for earthly things that perish. And he is pointing back to the miracle. In verse 12, after they had all eaten, they collected leftovers. And our Lord said, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. That word wasted is the same Greek word as the word here in verse 27 for perish. Apolomai. To be destroyed, to perish, to waste away. Same Greek word. Christ said, yesterday I fed all of you guys. And we had 12 basketfuls of food left over, fish and bread. Look at it today. In the heat of the day, it is all wasted away. It is rotten. The bread is hard, unedible. And the fish is gone sour. It is spoiled. It is unedible as well. Guys, you guys are laboring. You guys are striving. You guys are obsessed with these things that fade away, that perish. Christ says, no longer. This food has no eternal gain. Instead, strive for the food that endures to eternal life. It's interesting here that Christ is talking about food, a necessity for life. He's not talking about luxurious items, right? The cherry on top kind of items that, that we can get obsessed over. He's talking about basic necessities. Food, shelter, even water. They are natural part of life. But Christ says, even for such necessities, if you want to follow Him, our obsession must not be even our necessities. It must be Christ. Our Lord's point is do not be anxiously consumed in your heart about these things, even the necessary things of life. Remember Matthew 6, 31 and 32. The Gentiles, their, their life model, their full-time occupation is what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? These are needs for life. Our Lord says, the Gentiles, the pagans run after these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and God will meet all of your needs. That is the radical teaching of Christ. And yet, we are sad to come to, rea to the reality that all of us, to some degree, are prone to such excessive attention to earthly matters, right? All of us. 
to different degrees are prone to have an excessive, inordinate amount of attention, anxiety over the things of this earth. I remember um, seven years ago, you know, I'm talking about all these missions trips. Reminds me of my, my first, second mission trip to China. I spent three weeks in China with about a team of seven, eight people from Biola. Well, one guy on our team, he worked in the summertime as a firefighter for the National Forest Service. That was his summertime job. He would go for three months, camp out in the woods with the ranger service, and put out fires. I kid you not, every conversation with him ended up with talking about fighting fires in the forest. <laughs> every conversation. We'd be talking about the Great Wall of China, and then he'd talk about the brush near some buildings and how that is a fire hazard. <laughs> We'd be talking about what to eat for lunch, and uh, he'd start talking about what he ate while he fought fires in the forest. <laughs> it was like, come on, man, like, move on. We had a one-track mind. Another guy, a friend of mine, he was in the insurance business. Literally, almost every conversation I had with him ended up talking about insurance. Car insurance, home insurance, life insurance. So whatever topic I talked about, he would turn. You know what insurance says, right? You need insurance for that. I just walked, worked on this case. This is so common among so many people. They are completely engrossed in something in this world. Is that true for you? Maybe it's business. I mean, you're just obsessed. You're thinking about it, dreaming about it, anxious about it. You're talking about it. Your center of your life is business. Is it investments? Is it finance? Or maybe it's sports or entertainment. Now, Sun and I were talking, and we're saying, you know what? We are too engrossed with our daughter. And I'll be talking about this in the second hour. Paul says, if you're married, live as if not, as if you weren't married. I was thinking about what to preach for Stephen Topps' wedding. It's made a different sermon. And I'll say the first mark of a successful marriage is, you live as if you're not married. That's what Paul says. You have children. You live as if you don't have children. That's eschatological living. Right? You don't use marriage as an excuse not to follow the Lord. You don't use the fact that you have children to back away from ministry. You don't use circumstances of life distract you against the priority of pursuing Christ. So now we're saying, you know what? We love our child, but we need to live as if we don't have a daughter. Because our imperative in our life is to honor God, pursue Him. Our Lord rebukes such excessive attention to things in this world, even necessary things. He commands them and He commands us to stop seeking and stop striving for these things. That these things perish. That these things waste away. These things are not worthy of our endeavors. All of us ought to visit junkyards once in a while. We literally need to. Not Avenue, there's a dump. Right after you pass Cerritos on the way to church, you make a left turn, there's a public dump. We should have service there one of these Sundays. And look out at all the things that people threw away. All their supposed valuables. And it's trash now. No one wants it. Not even garage sales. It is waste. 
It's trash. These are things that people gave their lives for. Their sweat, their tears, their blood. And now, 5, 10, 20 years later, they're dumping it. It's not worthy of our anxiety. It's not worthy of our, our obsession. And that is what Christ is saying. He's saying, he says in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store for yourselves treasures on, treasures on earth, where moth, rust, destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 2 Peter 3, 10 and 11. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Everything is gone. It will be destroyed. Verse 11, this is what Peter says. Now, this is like words to live by, brothers and sisters. Words to live by. Since everything will be destroyed in this, this way, what kind of people ought we be? Since everything's going to perish. Since everything is temporary. Since God's going to destroy everything on this earth. What kind of people ought we be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Because these things perish. Well, that's what our Lord was saying. Stop. No longer labor, agonize, strive for these things. But instead, verse 27, our Lord commands that instead, work, labor for the food, this particular food that endures to eternal life. He's saying there is food out there, guys. You partake of this meal. You digest this food, and it will grant you salvation. It will give you eternal life. There's a sense where Christ is saying you can't do both. You can't strive for food that perishes. At the same time, strive for food that endures eternal life. You can only do one. You need to set aside this in order to pursue this food that gives you eternal life. What is this food? Our Lord tells them later on in His conversation. Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Look down in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Christ saying, it's me. I am the food. You need to be working. You need to be stri striving. You need to be obsessed. Compulsively obsessed. To labor. To eat of my flesh. Eat of my flesh. Is there such intensity for us as believers? The intensity that we have for things of this world. For food. For shelter. For security. Is there such intensity in pursuing Christ? Matthew eleven twelve says this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. King James Version says, violent men take hold of it. To lay hold of the kingdom of God, you need... 
that kind of mindset, a violent, forceful mindset, I need to have Christ. He's my bread. He's my water. He is what quenches my thirst, nourishes my soul. I must have Him. Without that kind of mentality, it is near impossible. Near impossible to acquire Him. Too many believers just dabble with Christ. Just get Him a piecemeal. If He's available, I'll, I'll, I'll have some. But there is no intense striving after the Lord. Labor like that is no doubt very uncommon. Our Lord calls us to strive after Him, to fight for Him, run after Him, throw our whole heart into pursuing Christ. We see that in Paul's example articulated in Philippians 3. Well, I'll just close our time um, just with these points. Um, you know, just I'll close with two thoughts. First thought, we just talked about it. What are you laboring for? What is your aim, goal in life? What are you preoccupied with? Just kind of think through that, guys, and and if you're serious about this and you want to live dangerously as a Christian, ask your spouse, ask him or her, her what, what preoccupies me? Tell me the truth. What is it? If you're single, ask your brother or sister. Ask a close friend, honestly. You, you hear what I talk about, what I worry about, what I fret about. What's my obsession in life? What do you see me striving after? What am I engrossed in? Right. Secondly, are you today laboring to seek Christ with the same passion and intensity with which you seek the food that perishes? Right. If you're sitting there, damn, this is a basic Christianity. This is like Christianity 101. I know this. I've been a Christian for so many years, I heard this already. Come on, aren't you going to get deep? Hey guys, if these are so basic, why do we live such shallow lives as Christians? If these are so basic, then why are you not living it out? For Paul, for Christ, for all the apostles, it's always present tense. They never lived in the past. Seeking Christ for the apostles was always present tense. You know, I told Mike yesterday in the wedding, may the day of, may you say that you loved your wife the least on your wedding day. Right? 50 years from now, that his love for Sue was the smallest on their wedding day. Well, can you say that about Christ? That you love the Lord the least? When you first became a Christian? Can you say that you sought after Him? You labored for His kingdom the least on the day of salvation. And now, your love and heart and passion for Him presently is growing, is increasing day by day. Christian life is to be lived in the present tense 
and not the past tense. Let's heed the words of Christ this morning as we are challenged by the mission team that not to labor no longer over these things that perish, but for, for Christ who endures eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, these words convict our hearts not because they're not James's words or, or church's words or denomination's words. These words convict us and, and uh, impact our hearts because they are your words. They are the words of the living God. Words from a man, from God who knows our heart, who knows all things. Help us to live soberly, Lord, not believing in our own words, but believing in your words, believing in your statements, and striving to live by the standards that you have set for us. In Jesus' name, amen.